The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether man or beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain." So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of the Lord. I'm Alex Arguello, and my wife Emily and our family have been with Sacred City for around five years now. And the primary way that I serve um, Sacred City is as a deacon and a missional community leader. Our missional community currently is North Park MC, and we've been with them now for, for around two years. And 
So I'm not a full-time pastor. I'm definitely not a full-time preacher. As Justin said, this will be only my second time um, of being in this pulpit. And my first time was only a few months ago back in July. And if I was perfectly honest with you, that time I thought was going to be the last time that I was going to be up here. Um, but clearly God has other plans and, and the staff at Sacred City has other plans. Um, so here we are. And uh, it's an honor um, to be able to do this this morning. I'm very thankful because um, I believe this is a high calling. And I also believe that here at Sacred City, we have some amazing preachers. Um, not only Justin, but, but Jeff Miller and um, Eric Olson's been up here. And of course, Sam, who's over in Moline now. Um, we have some amazing men that are able to bring God's word to you. So to be in that group, um, it's definitely an honor. Um, I, the past few months through this Exodus series, I think there's been some great sermons um, in my opinion, the last three weeks, uh, Pastor Justin's preached three of the best sermons that I've ever heard him preach. And uh, that might just be where my heart is at, but brother's been on fire. <laughs> you guys agree with that? Yes. Yeah. So now you get me. <laughs> and if I was alone, uh, that would not be a good thing. But we believe that the spirit of God is present. We believe that God's word is powerful. And I trust that the help that I've been able to receive from not only Justin, but the other men in Preaching Lab, um, that God's going to do a good work today. So I did have a big, long intro where I was going to tell some jokes and make fun of Justin, as I like to do. But here's the deal. Last time I preached, um, I had 11 verses. This time I have 25. So we got to get to work. So let me pray, and uh, we'll jump into that. God, thank you um, for this opportunity for me. But all of us, we just thank you that we get to be called into worship of you this morning. Because as we'll see in our text, that's a big deal. So I pray that we would be thankful for that, but I also pray now that you would communicate yourself to us this morning, that you would show us who you are, that you would show us what you've done, um, that you'd really just show us how amazing it is to be called your children. So we need your help. I need your help with the speaking of your word, and these guys need your help with the hearing of your word. So Holy Spirit, do that work that we cannot do so that Jesus may be high and lifted up today and that he may be magnified. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, as you've seen that we read, we are currently in the book of Exodus. And if you are a guest today, what we've been doing for the last few months is we've been preaching through this book and we've been going verse by verse through each chapter. We believe that preaching God's word like that is the best way that we can teach the whole how the whole counsel of God. So that's how we do it here. And today we come to an, a very important part of the book of Exodus and, and even an important part of the entire Bible. Exodus 19 um, is look back throughout the rest of the Bible. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the major prophets. And, and even in the New Testament, we see it in the book of Hebrews. And many scholars believe that Exodus 19 contains in it the heart of the Old Testament, they said. God's even going to make another covenant or further his covenant with Israel. And these verses show us one of the most amazing, terrifying displays of God's glory that's ever been seen on earth. So there's a lot going on here today, and I wish I could take time and, and spend um, on all of those things. But what my hope is today in this 19th chapter is that we would be able to see this God that we've been reading about in the book of Exodus, we would be able to see who he actually is in all of his grace and in all of his holiness and then what is required for people like the Israelites and people like us to be with him. So, if you could um, open up your Bibles 
Um, I was going to say that there should be Bibles on the floor, but I'm not sure that those are here. So if you guys have a phone or something with a Bible app on it, um, definitely open that up and, and we'll start in Exodus 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out of Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. So let's stop real quick and and kind of set up where we're at. God rescues Israel out of Egypt. And according to verse 1, they've been in this wilderness for about three three months to this point. That's the third moon. And he said that, I'm going to take you guys to the promised land, which is this land flowing with milk and honey, as he described it. But that land is actually the land of Canaan. And right now in this chapter, they're in the land of Sinai. So Canaan is in the opposite direction of Sinai. They would have had to have gone north to get to Canaan from Egypt, but they've actually are here way south. So before Israel gets to the promised land, God must have something else that he needs to do with them. I think this can be a picture of the Christian life. When we come to know God and are brought into his family, although we want to go straight to the promised land, we want everything for the rest of our life to go the way we want. That's not ever the case. God often leads us through many deserts and difficult seasons before we are ready for the promised land. And here's the big idea. The whole time we are there in that desert, those wilderness times, he's preparing us to meet with him. And we see that same thing here with the Israelites. Let's look back at verse 3. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. So this is Mount Sinai, somewhere on the Sinai Peninsula, which is south of Egypt. And we learn in chapter 18 that this is the mountain of God. So God has brought Israel back to the mountain where he first showed up to Moses early on in Exodus. He is about to show up in a similar way that he showed up to Moses in the burning bush. Israel gets to this mountain, sets up camp, and Moses remembers what God told him before. And we seen in Exodus 3, God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, You shall serve God on this mountain. This is evidence that God is faithful and that everything that we've been going through was part of God's plan. This is not plan B. He's still on plan A, even though they are in the desert. So Moses goes up to hear from the Lord as his prophet. And let's see what God says to him back in verse three. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God is saying, Israel, remember this. I drowned the Egyptians. And then I didn't just leave you vulnerable on your own so that you could starve or die of thirst or be conquered by some other nation. I stayed with you. I am for you. You are my people. The picture of the eagle's wings here that God refers to is beautiful. If you know anything about eagles, when they feel that their young are ready to fly, they'll shake up the nest a lot so that the young, is, the young eagle's forced out to try to fly. If they do, great. But if they don't and they start to fall towards the ground, what the mother will do is the mother will fly down to catch her young eagle, but not grab it with its talons like it would grab some form of prey. It will swoop under 
the young eagle and catch it on her wings, rescuing it from sure death. That's what God has done with the Israelites. If we remember, he gets them out of Egypt, but on their journey from Egypt, the Egyptians pursue them, and then he brings them to the Red Sea where they're set up for sure death. But God swoops down to rescue them in their helpless state. That's the love that he has for them. He wants them to know it and experience it, and and now he's saying, remember it. This description of the eagle and her young seems like a good picture of sanctification, which is the process God takes Christians through to mature them and make them look more like Jesus Christ. God can sometimes shake our nest so that we're forced out to fly. God can take us to tough places like deserts or put us in uncomfortable experiences like being pushed out of the nest without knowing how to fly. Why would he do that? Well, we don't grow in grace or become more like Jesus in the easy, comfortable times in our life most of the time. The eaglet never matures and learns to fly if they stay in the nest. Its loving mother knows that their young are going to, if they're young are going to survive, they must learn how to fly, so they force them out of the nest. Now an eaglet from birth has been protected and comforted and even fed by the mother. So it should know that the mother loves it and and has its best interests in mind. But think about this. When the eaglet falls out of the nest and is going towards the ground and headed for sure death, and then the mother swoops down and catches it out of the air, there's a new level of love in that relationship. The mother is adored more and trusted more. And the same goes with God. He is known in a new and deeper way when we are in a place where we feel like we're falling to the ground, but then we are rescued by him. He is no longer just a creator and sustainer anymore, but our rescuer, our redeemer. This, of course, happens at conversion for Christians, but it continues to the rest of life in sanctification. He desires to be known like that. J.I. Packer, a theologian, says, knowing God is our life's, was what our life's aim should be. It is what we were made for. Knowing him in all of his ways is the goal. Because the more we know him, the more we will love him. And the more we love him, the more we will obey him. And the more we obey him, the more we will glorify and enjoy him. So why do we try to hide from this? Why do we cling on to the branches of our nests instead of trusting in the wisdom of a loving heavenly father. He will rescue us when we're falling, just like he did the Israelites. Let's keep reading in verse five. Now, therefore, so he's saying, because I did all of that, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now these verses that we just read three through six are what many theologians believe is the heart of the old Testament. One of them even said that all of human history after this point is impacted by these verses. So what's so special here? Well, what we see here is the order of God's grace. I wish I could just stop and talk about this today, but of course there's a lot we need to get to, but we have to stay here for a while. We can't get this order messed up in our heads. You see, in our heads, we can very easily start to think that this order is wrong. 
We can start to believe that we have to obey to be rescued instead of what these verses tell us, which is God moves first. God rescued the Israelites. He didn't show up to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus and say, Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. Now go and give them this law. And if they obey this law, I will come and save them. That's not what he did. That's not how he works. He works by sheer grace and out of love for his chosen people. He again swooped down to rescue them. And now he wants them to obey, but now he also wants them to be his treasured possession, which is unbelievable. As God said, he owns everything in the world. Like a king would at this time, he would own everything in his kingdom. But kings at this time also had their prized possessions. They had private treasures that they loved and they held tightly and they cherished. This is what Israel is for God. It would be similar to your love for all the kids in the world compared to your love for your own children. Now I know we all have this deep love for other people's kids, but we have this deeper love for our own kids. That's how God loved the Israelites like his own children. So yes, God is saying that obedience is required to be my treasured possession. This is him ushering in the Mosaic covenant, which we'll learn about in the next few weeks as we go through the 10 commandments. But there's something else that we have to see here. He said way back in Exodus three, that they were his people and he went through all of this work to rescue them. So yes, they are to obey, but not to earn the status of God's treasured possession. But this is how he wanted them to enjoy what they already had. In a sense, they were already God's treasure. He chose them to be that long ago, but obedience to God is how they were going to experience being God's treasure. This is the order of grace that continues to us today. One can do nothing to start the process of being made one of God's children. And it surely isn't work that rescues us out of the family of darkness. God moves first if that's going to happen. He comes after us. Scripture is very clear about human beings before God moves on their heart. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So this means that we don't even have the ability, let alone the desire to be one of his children. We are actually children of wrath, which makes me always think of children of the corn for some reason. But spiritually, that's where we're at until God, the Holy Spirit moves on our heart and he takes out this hard heart of stone and replaces it with a soft heart of flesh. Like the book of Ezekiel tells us. So we are rescued by grace through faith in Christ. But why? Why does God rescue us? Well, very similar to the Israelites, he saves us so that we may obey him, which brings him glory. We may love him and obey him, which brings him glory. And here's what's amazing about that phrase. Loving him and obeying him not only brings him glory, but it's also what brings us joy. That's how God set it up. But this joy doesn't happen If we get this order messed up, which if you're like me, you get this order messed up a lot, which steals a lot of your joy. 
You see, I can read the Bible every day, pray multiple times a day. I can lead a missional community. I can lead my wife. I can disciple my kids. All of these things are obedience to God, but I can do them without any joy. This is because instead of doing them from a mind and a heart that knows that I'm already God's treasured possession through Jesus, I do them instead of out of duty. When I'm living like this, I believe that I have to obey God to become his treasure. I'm trying to earn my way into God's treasure box. This makes me afraid of failure. It causes me to fear what people will think of me if they learn how often I fail. A friend of mine calls this living out of fear instead of living by faith. And it's not enjoyable. I am in this place more often than I would like to admit. Just as recent as the last few months, I've been there. A few things that I noticed hap- that happened during these times is at these times of disordered grace as I become very selfish and cold and, and even prideful. None of those things, of course, work well for your horizontal relationships with people and nor for your vertical relationship with God. In my most recent struggle with this, I became very short-tempered with my sons and started treating them like they were beneath me. You see, when you think you have to earn your way into God's treasure box, you think others need to earn their way into yours. This is what I was doing. I was failing to communicate and connect with my wife, and we became more like roommates that just bicking back and forth with each other. Missional community for me became like a task, and I would just go and lead out of duty instead of love and not really care to, to live life with any of them. And the crazy thing about all this is, for the most part, I was blind to it. I had no idea how bad it was. And it actually took me hurting somebody in our MC with speaking to them in an unloving way, similar to how I was speaking to my children, for me to actually stop and think, man, something's not right. When I mentioned it to Emily, she proceeded to pour on the rest of the stuff that I was failing at. (laughs) Praise God for honest wives. So I had some work to do. Now, for me, I wish I could just say, I'm sorry, babe. I'm sorry, everyone else. I know that's not right. I'll try to be better, which that's definitely what I'm drawn towards. But that's the work that, that, that's not the, the work that we have to do in those times. But it's necessary to do this heart level work to figure out where my heart was at, why it was in this place so that true repentance could happen. That work can be painful. But again, as I said, it's necessary. And what I realized after praying and talking to some wise people is I had become hard toward everything else in my life because I was living out of fear. I was in fear of losing this false identity that I try to create when I'm forgetting the order of God's grace. This false identity is one of no weaknesses and no ability to fail and always at the top of the list which that list might be pretty small, which it normally is, but that's what I want. I want people to look at me and say, he's the man. That's what I want. So when anything tries to take this identity from me, I try to fight to keep it. Sometimes by just working harder, by doing more, so that I can maybe prolong the failure. But most of the time, I just justify my failure so it doesn't look as bad to other people. I think this is why I say yes to so many things. 
As if being a husband of a wife and a father of five and MC leader and, and a business owner wasn't enough, I say yes to elder training. I say yes to preaching sermons. I say yes to coaching my son's basketball team. I say yes to doing fitness competitions. I think I do so many things for protection. If I have all these things in my life, I can easily justify when one of them or all of them are about to fail. I tell myself, I'm not the failure. It's just all these things that I have on my plate. Now, there might be some truth to all the things that I have on my plate. But saying that I'm not a failure is very dangerous for me. Because it makes me go into this protection mode and keeps me in a place where I can't receive God's grace. Not a place you want to be. But when unbelief is present, anything that might expose us sends us into this protection mode. Not doing well at the office, not spiritually leading my family well, not loving my wife well, not perfectly leading MC. Any or all these things can make me go, dang, what if people look at me and say, I'm not awesome. Then my heart gets shut off and my mind can only focus on how I'm going to protect that identity. This, my friends, is an exhausting way to live. And although it continues to be a struggle for me in the past few weeks, thankfully, God once again has swooped down to rescue me from this. And he showed me through my wife and community and through our text today that this is where I was at and he called me to repentance. I needed to turn from this false identity and believe the truth in his order of grace. He rescues me by his amazing grace, not my amazing works. But when I'm believing that, all of the work that he's given me to do, which is a lot, can be enjoyed and done by faith and no longer fear, which is a freeing place to be and one that's enjoyable. That felt like the hot seat more than I thought it was going <laughs> to. I love it. I try to hide from sharing at missional community and God just says, okay, go do it in front of the whole church. Put it on YouTube. <laughs> but I hope that was helpful for you guys. And, and I have to, of course, ask you guys now, are you in a similar spot? Are you trying to live a moral life or do things that you know God wants you to do, but not because you, <clears throat> you know that this is glorifying to God, but you're doing it to earn your status or earn your acceptance as a son or daughter? That's not how you get into the family. It's not how you stay there either. And many of us know that, but I think if we're honest, that's where many of us are at to some degree. No matter how mature in the faith you are, most Christians still fight for a righteousness of their own. We want to earn our worthiness. We want to be a good enough mom or a good enough husband, a good enough provider, a good enough friend, a good enough whatever. Not because, again, God deserves our best and these roles glorify him well, but it's because we've forgotten this order of grace. We are trying to work our way into God's treasure box. We think our God says, you don't have my acceptance until you show me something. And if this is us now, it's time to repent and hear the truth that God's word is revealing to us today. God chose us and rescued us by his grace, not our obedience. Worship him for that and enjoy who you are. 
because what we'll see next is he wanted the Israelites to enjoy, and it points to something in the New Testament where it shows us we can enjoy the same things. Back to verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what's a priest? It's one who has direct access to God. We will see high priests in our story soon, and they will be the ones who only have access to God's presence. What God is saying to the Israelites here is, if you obey me, you will have access to me, the God of the universe. He also says you'll be a holy nation. Now, many of you know that the word holy means set apart. So what he's saying here is that Israelites will experience being different than any other nation. They will be the nation that shows all other nations what God is like. What an amazing gift. No other nation had this opportunity to live like God wanted his people to live. And no other nation had this opportunity to be blessed by God for living like that. That same is given, the same gift is given to Christians in the New Testament. In 1 Peter, Peter calls us a royal priesthood and a holy nation. God wanted the Israelites to enjoy that then, and he wants us to enjoy it now. So we see right away in this chapter, right away in God's meeting with his people, how amazing his love is for them. He wants to be intimately involved in their lives and wants them to be a big part of his story. This is something that theologians call God's eminence. It's a big word, but he's an eminent God. He is near to his people. He wants to be present and close to them. That's part of what he wants Moses to tell them. So let's look at what Moses does here. Back in verse six, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So Moses gets this command from God. He goes back down the mountain to share it with the people. And how he does this is he brings the elders together, which is most likely just the men of character that we learned about last week. He tells them and then they go and tell the rest of the people. And then here's their corporate response. Verse eight, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now that sounds crazy to me that they would just say, yeah, I'll do whatever you say, God, without really knowing what he's going to say. But most likely the Israelites have seen enough and God reminded them enough of what they have seen. So at this time, their trust and their faith in God is strong. So they respond accordingly. But look at what happens when Moses reports this to the Lord in verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. We will come back to the thick cloud, but I'm just thinking how I would respond if I was God. I would have cracked up at their response. I have a friend that when something's funny in a text message, instead of just saying one LOL, he has to send this obnoxious amount of those emojis that are laughing so hard they're crying. That's what I would have sent them. (laughs) If I was God and we were communicating through text, I guess. But thankfully, I'm not God because his response is much better. He draws near to them. He knows that even though they are professing with their mouths and to some degree, maybe in their hearts, they desire to obey, they still need more. Their doubts will creep in. Their sinfulness will cause them to lose faith. Or maybe they'll just justify that they shouldn't believe Moses is really speaking for God. Or maybe if they believe Moses is speaking for God, they start to think like this. 
I mean, God doesn't really want us to obey everything that he says, does he? I mean, he's so loving and cuddly and warm. He'll be nice to us even if we don't obey everything that he says. This can be us in times. I think we're maybe we're not forgetting the order of God's grace, but we start to think that obedience isn't necessary. We get careless or casual with our obedience to God. I can remember a friend of mine a few years back, and she wanted to check out Sacred City, but the people of her current church knew Pastor Justin, and they said, Justin doesn't believe in a gracious God, so you can't go to that church. Now, this was interesting for me because this was at a time where I was spending a lot of time with Justin, and he was pouring into me and teaching me theology, and of course, grace was a big part of what he was teaching me. So as I dove into this a little more, what I realized is, the church that she was at, their understanding of a gracious God was one that doesn't care about sin. Sin or sin. Nothing we can do about it. God understands. Now, unfortunately, some churches are teaching that, but I think we can all think like this from time to time. And I'm sure some of the Israelites were in that place as well. But God wanted there to be no doubt about what he was going to say. So God says, I'm coming. Moses, I want them to believe you forever. So I'm going to come and speak out loud to them so there's no doubt who's commanding them. I think this situation is relevant to the rest of human history. People since this time have been doubting and questioning and trying to justify their thoughts and actions even to this day. Are we doing this? Are we disobeying God right now and instead of repenting and try in some way to justify that God doesn't really mean what he says about this sin? He showed up to them at Mount Sinai, but he has showed up to us in his word. Do we trust his word and follow all of it? Or do we pick and choose what we want to believe based on our sinful desires? Sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, lack of generosity, lack of hospitality towards outsiders are all areas we do this with. We don't want to believe that God really says this is sin, so we figure out a way to justify continuing to do it. Or here's a big one. Are we telling ourselves that God doesn't care if we are living in community or not? And by community, I don't mean we have friends. But are we in a real, diverse, gospel-centered community? And even if we are attending missional community, we have to ask ourselves this question because being in an MC doesn't have to mean that we're living in community. I just went through how I was not really mentally and emotionally and relationally invested in my MC even as I was co-leading it. Community can be avoided whether we show up to MC functions or not. Showing up to the gathering, of course, is important, but if we are just showing up and avoid sharing what's going on in our life with our MC and avoid asking other people what's going on in their life, then we are avoiding community. And we're back to what we talked about earlier. We're doing it out of duty and not for God's glory and our good. If this is the case, we're missing out on joy that God wants for us and an opportunity to honor and glorify him. I know community can be uncomfortable. But if we avoid it, we're staying in the nest. The eaglet never realizes their inability to fly if they never leave the nest. But they also never realize how much their mother loves them. 
This is the same for us if we are in sin. Sometimes sin is comfortable for us, but we have to remember God is imminent. He is near, but sometimes it takes the uncomfortable to realize how near he actually is. If we have been thinking this way, thinking that God loves me, so it's okay if I don't fully obey him, we won't like what's next. Here's what we're going to see. God, yes, is imminent. He wants to be near, but that doesn't mean we can approach him in an unworthy manner. If you are unclean, which is what we are, if we are in unrepentant sin, there will be danger. This is because while God is imminent, he is also transcendent which means he is completely other and better and beyond anything that we can imagine. And one of his transcendent attributes is his holiness, which won't allow us to come to him unclean. Let's take a look at this in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. So consecrate them means set them apart. Take them away from what is dirty or unclean and dedicate it to that which is holy. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. There's some interesting stuff going on here. God tells them I'm coming so that you can see me and believe me and Moses, my prophet. I want you to know that I am with you and I really want you to believe my words and enjoy the blessings of obedience, but there's something about me that you don't quite understand and you have to get it. You're dirty. You're far from holy. And I still love you and treasure you in that state. But if we are going to, if you are going to be my people, you have to change. You have to be clean. So he told Moses, go and purify them. And look what else he says. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches that mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. There he is. That little cuddly God of our imaginations, like Big Mama in the book to Shack, that is all about love and kindness and cuddliness and doesn't really need our obedience, right? No. Here's the real God that if you come too close to him, you will be put to death. That doesn't sound very loving probably, but that's who he is. It's not that he doesn't love dirty people. It's that his being, what and who he is, is so clean and so pure that if you come too close, you're done. It's like fire. Fire doesn't hate you, but jump in it and see what happens. Nobody has ever complained about fire being unloving. But it's verses like this that people that do not believe, non-believers, will look in at the Bible and say, how can you believe in a God like that? That's not love. That's tyrannical. Who does that God think he is? But we should see this is not about who God thinks he is. This is about God knowing exactly who he is and warning us to believe it. God is absolutely holy. Now I know we know that word and I know we know that the Bible says God's holy, but that's a word that's been watered down a great deal. 
We say things all the time like holy moly and holy buckets or even worse, holy. Thought I was going to say that, didn't you? <laughs> but holiness is God's supreme attribute. It is who he is more so than anything else. We love to say that God is love, but scripture magnifies God's holiness even more. In the Bible, the way to communicate something with emphasis is to say the word multiple times. We heard Jesus say this. He would say things like, truly, truly, I say to you, which means listen up because what I'm about to say is vital. Well, let's look at Isaiah 6, 3. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the only description of God in the Bible that's taken to the superlative. Should we pay attention to that? I think so. I mean, think about this. When people in the Bible get a vision of God, they fall apart. They see right away how terrible they are and how unworthy they are to be in his presence. This is the posture of a person who rightly understands the holiness of God and the wickedness of man. They're directly opposed. They can't be together. But even more than that, when we look at the Bible, even angels who have never sinned can't look at the holiness of God. Those angels that we just read about in Isaiah, they were covering their eyes as they were saying, holy, holy, holy. That's how holy he is. So is God loving? Absolutely. But his love is a holy love. We have to see that. So is this our posture? When we come into the presence of God and we are called into his worship, are we come to him in reverence? Are we coming to him like he's our homeboy? Or the big man upstairs or everything else, how people describe God. I hope that's not how we think of him. If we are to come to him, we are coming to him in reverence, knowing that we don't have a worthiness of our own to be in his presence. Because like the Israelites, we are unclean in our flesh. And they are starting to see this. I can't imagine what they thought here. They just seen him kill all the firstborn in Egypt, kill the Egyptians at the Red Sea, and destroy the people of Amalek. And now he says, if you disobey me, you will die also. But when that trumpet sounds, go ahead and come on to the mountain. Let's look at verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their garments. Now, scholars aren't exactly sure what Moses did to consecrate the people, but what most assume is most likely he sacrificed animals to make people internally clean, and then the people washed their garments, which is an external sign of purification. They were being prepared spiritually and physically and mentally and emotionally. And verse 15 adds to this. It says, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day and don't go near a woman. I tried to think of a joke for that verse, but figured I'd get in trouble. (laughs) But Moses is talking about sex here. He's speaking to married men and married women and saying, for the next three days, don't have sex. Not because sex is dirty in any way, if it's in the context of marriage, but God didn't want them to focus on anything else. So he says, refrain and dedicate your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole body, your whole soul to meeting with me. And now we come to the day of the Holy God's arrival. An event that many scholars say is the most amazing display of God's power and glory ever witnessed in history. Which again, speaks to his holiness. John Piper says that a display of God's glory is his holiness being revealed. We will see this in verse 16. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. This is an amazing scene. This third day that Moses told them about to be ready for finally comes and God shows up in this thick cloud that he spoke up before. Now, this cloud is interesting because in a sense, it's displaying God's glory, but it's also concealing it. You see, God is so holy that if he comes to earth unveiled, everything would be undone. This cloud is a picture of him being able to be imminent and transcendent at the same time. So he comes in this cloud, but along with this cloud, there's thunder and lightning on display so that they can not only see God's presence, but hear God's presence. On top of that, a loud trumpet blast goes off, which calls them to the foot of the mountain to wait for God. So they stop everything and follow Moses. But this wasn't a casual walk over to the mountain, was it? Scripture says these people were trembling. They go over to the mountain and see that it's wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on the mountain in fire. This fire was so powerful and magnificent that the smoke of it covered the entire mountain. And this is crazy. tells us that even the mountain trembled. If that wasn't enough to terrify everyone, this trumpet sound just kept getting louder and louder and louder. This is so terrifying for these people that we'll see next week in Exodus 20 that the people tell Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. Scared to him even speaking to them. So God had accomplished what he said he would. He wanted them to believe and listen to Moses, so he shows up. And now Moses is going to go up the mountain for the last time to hear from God. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. God again warns, tells Moses to warn the people not to come up on the mountain as if they're already not understanding. Even Moses is like, God, we get it. You say, don't come up on the mountain. Stay behind the caution tape, bows, arrows, stones. We got it. We're not going to come up there. But God doesn't stop telling him. God doesn't stop warning them. Again, verse 24, he says that if the people break through, they're done. And this time he even says, I will break out against them. So hopefully, now that we've seen these 25 verses, we've seen that, yes, God is gracious. He's loving to his people. He's imminent and desires an intimate relationship with us, but he's also transcendent and holy, 
which makes him dangerous. So the Israelites have a problem. And it's a problem that all people have had since the garden. They and all their sinfulness and uncleannesses can't meet. They can't commune with this type of God. They can't even hear his voice because he's so terrifying. So how are they going to know what he wants from them? He said, obey me and you'll be my treasured possession. But they'll never know how to obey them because they can't be in his presence to hear what he has to say. So what could they do? The answer is nothing. They could do nothing to address this problem. God once again had to intervene. God had to provide them with a mediator. One who could go between him and his unholy people. So now we see in God's order of grace that not only does God move first to rescue the Israelites and put them in a place where they can now experience the joy of being in covenant with him, but even for this to happen, God has to provide grace again. He has to provide mediation. Now Moses has been acting as this for a while as his prophet, but we see his role and importance of him again here. Moses is the one who comes between these two opposites. There's no knowledge of the covenant without Moses. Two times God says, go down, Moses. Go down and connect me and my people by sharing with them what I say. Moses closed this gap for the people. They had to get to God to receive the blessings that come from obedience. And Moses made that possible. But as I said, and as I close, everyone since this time has had the same problem. Being unclean, but needing to meet with a holy God. And although Moses isn't the answer, the answer for this problem for us is still a mediator. And God provides that for us in a much greater way. You see, the Israelites mediator gave them the law and set up the old covenant, which said, obey this law and you'll be my people. You'll be blessed by God. Our mediator gives us himself. Our mediator obeys this whole law perfectly and ushers in a new covenant. Our mediator takes our uncleannesses onto himself and absorbs the punishment that we deserve for our disobedience. Our mediator closes the gap between us and God. Not through coming down a mountain and giving us a law, but through going up a mountain and dying on a cross. Jesus is our mediator. And he's better than Moses and any high priest. Jesus is the answer to God's eminence and transcendence. He as God himself came to live among us, to be near to us, but he's also God almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the eagle that swooped down to rescue us. And now he frees us and sends the Holy Spirit to empower us to obey him today. We no longer have to be terrified of how dangerous God is. This means for the Christian, their trembling has changed. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as my present, in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a trembling of awe and wonder, not danger. 
The Christian is no longer in danger when drawing near to God. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The book of Isaiah tells us that we get to come to him in a much better way. Isaiah 35 says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Zion is the new mountain of God. And if we are in Christ, we come to it with joy and singing. This is why we can sing this morning, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Some of the lyrics of that song were right out of Isaiah 35. On Mount Zion, we will at last see his face. We will have joy through the ages and sing of his love for us. Can we sing this this morning? And if we can sing it, are we enjoying that we're able to sing it? Are we overwhelmed by being able to sing it? That's the prayer for all of us this morning. That we would be blown away that a God this holy would be so gracious and so loving to give us so many things, including himself. So as we come to the table this morning, God wanted them to remember what he had done for them. That's what we started this sermon off with. The Lord's Supper is much like that. Remember what Christ has done for you, but also remember how holy our God is that gave us this ordinance. Don't come to this table in dirtiness. Take some time to repent and believe the good news that you've been made clean first. And if you've never believed upon Christ's life and work, you can't remember it. So don't take the elements this morning. Take Christ and join us in worshiping him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is powerful. That you say that people believe when they hear your word. And it doesn't necessarily mean how we communicate that word. It doesn't necessarily mean there has to be some amazing, powerful sermon. It's just that they have to hear your word. And then the spirit has to move in their heart and they can receive that and respond in faith, Lord. So I thank you for this opportunity today to not only preach your word, but also hear this word myself. I thank you for the work that you've already done in my heart through this. And I thank you for the work that you will continue to do from here. And now I pray, Father, that a similar thing would happen for these people, Lord, that they heard something today in your word that makes, that it reminds them of how amazing of a God you are, of how holy you are, but also how gracious and loving you are that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, and he would die for us. He would live a life that we couldn't, then he would take on a punishment that we deserve. And then that would give us his righteousness if we have our faith in him. So that now you can look down at us and you cannot look at us and see that we're trembling out of danger 
but you can look down at us and see that we're trembling out of awe and wonder because we see how amazing of a loving God you are. Jesus, I pray that you are magnified today. I pray that you are high and lifted up. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.